Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. In our last episode, a group of wartime travelers escaping the city of Rouen, including a prostitute named Boule de Suif, are being held hostage at an inn by a Prussian officer who refuses to let them leave the town of Tote, where they are marooned after a snowstorm. As we re-enter our story, three of the male travelers attempt to approach the Prussian officer to question his reasons for delaying their departure. The three men, the Count, Monsieur Carlamadon, and Monsieur Loiseau, went upstairs and were ushered into the best room in the inn, where the officer received them lolling at his ease in an armchair, his feet on the mantelpiece, smoking a long porcelain pipe, and enveloped in a gorgeous dressing gown, doubtless stolen from the deserted dwelling of some citizen destitute of taste in dress. He neither rose, greeted them, nor even glanced in their direction. He afforded a fine example of that insolence of bearing which seems natural to the victorious soldier. After the lapse of a few minutes, he said in his halting French, "'What do you want?' "'We wish to start on our journey,' said the Count. "'No.' "'May I ask the reason of your refusal?' "'Because I don't choose.' "'I would respectfully call your attention, monsieur, to the fact that your general in command gave us a permit to proceed to Dieppe.' and I do not think we have done anything to deserve this harshness at your hands. I don't choose. That's all. You may go. They bowed and retired. The afternoon was wretched. They could not understand the caprice of this German, and the strangest ideas came into their heads. They all congregated in the kitchen and talked the subject to death, imagining all kinds of unlikely things. Perhaps they were to be kept as hostages, but for what reason? Or to be extradited as prisoners of war? Or possibly they were to be held for ransom? They were panic-stricken at this last supposition. The richest among them were the most alarmed, seeing themselves forced to empty bags of gold into the insolent soldiers' hands in order to buy back their lives. They racked their brains for plausible lies whereby they might conceal the fact that they were rich and pass themselves off as poor, very poor. Loiseau took off his watch-chain and put it in his pocket. The approach of night increased their apprehension. The lamp was lighted, and as it wanted yet two hours to dinner, Madame Loiseau proposed a game of trente-et-un. It would distract their thoughts. The rest agreed, and Cornudet himself joined the party, first putting out his pipe for politeness' sake. The Count shuffled the cards, dealt, and Boule de Suif had thirty-one to start with. Soon the interest of the game assuaged the anxiety of the players. But Cornudet noticed that Loiseau and his wife were in league to cheat. They were about to sit down to dinner when Monsieur Follonville appeared, and in his grating voice announced, "'The Prussian officer sends to ask Mademoiselle Elizabeth Rousset if she has changed her mind yet.' Boule de Suif stood still, pale as death. Then, suddenly turning crimson with anger, she gasped out, 
Kindly tell that scoundrel, that cur, that carrion of a Prussian, that I will never consent. You understand? Never, never, never. The fat innkeeper left the room. Then Boule de Suif was surrounded, questioned, entreated on all sides to reveal the mystery of her visit to the officer. She refused at first, but her wrath soon got the better of her. "'What does he want? He wants to make me his mistress!' she cried. No one was shocked at the word, so great was the general indignation. Cornudet broke his jug as he banged it down on the table. A loud outcry arose against this base soldier. All were furious. They drew together in common resistance against the foe, as if some part of the sacrifice exacted of Boule de Suif had been demanded of each. The Count declared with supreme disgust that those people behaved like ancient barbarians. The women, above all, manifested a lively and tender sympathy for Boule de Suif. The nuns, who appeared only at meals, cast down their eyes and said nothing. They dined, however, as soon as the first indignant outburst had subsided, but they spoke little and thought much. The ladies went to bed early, and the men, having lighted their pipes, proposed a game of écarte, in which Monsieur Follonville was invited to join, the travellers hoping to question him skillfully as to the best means of vanquishing the officer's obduracy. But he thought of nothing but his cards, would listen to nothing, reply to nothing, and repeated, time after time, "'Attend to the game, gentlemen! Attend to the game!' So absorbed was his attention that he even forgot to expectorate. The consequence was that his chest gave forth rumbling sounds like those of an organ. His wheezing lungs struck every note of the asthmatic scale, from deep, hollow tones to a shrill, hoarse piping, resembling that of a young cock trying to crow. He refused to go to bed when his wife, overcome with sleep, came to fetch him. So she went off alone, for she was an early bird, always up with the sun, while he was addicted to late hours, ever ready to spend the night with friends. He merely said, "'Put my eggnog by the fire,' and went on with the game. When the other men saw that nothing was to be got out of him, they declared it was time to retire, and each sought his bed. They rose fairly early the next morning, with a vague hope of being allowed to start, a greater desire than ever to do so, and a terror at having to spend another day in this wretched little inn. Alas, the horses remained in the stable. The driver was invisible. They spent their time, for want of something better to do, in wandering around the coach. Luncheon was a gloomy affair, and there was a general coolness toward Boule de Suif, for night, which brings counsel, had somewhat modified the judgment of her companions. In the cold light of the morning they almost bore a grudge against the girl for not having secretly sought out the Prussian, that the rest of the party might receive a joyful surprise when they awoke. What more simple? Besides, who would have been the wiser? She might have saved appearances by telling the offer that she had taken pity on their distress. Such a step would be of so little consequence to her. But no one as yet confessed to such thoughts. In the afternoon, seeing that they were all bored to death, the Count proposed a walk in the neighborhood of the village. Each one wrapped himself up well, and the little party set out, leaving behind only Cornudet, who preferred to sit over the fire, 
and the two nuns, who were in the habit of spending their day in the church or at the presbytery. The cold, which grew more intense each day, almost froze the noses and ears of the pedestrians. Their feet began to pain them so that each step was a penance, and when they reached the open country, it looked so mournful and depressing in its limitless mantle of white that they hastily retraced their steps, with bodies benumbed and hearts heavy. The four women walked in front, and the three men followed a little in their rear. L'oiseau, who saw perfectly well how matters stood, asked suddenly if that trollop were going to keep them waiting much longer in this godforsaken spot. The Count, always courteous, replied that they could not exact so painful a sacrifice from any woman, and that the first move must come from herself. Monsieur Carlamadon remarked that if the French, as they talked of doing, made a counter-attack by way of Dieppe, their encounter with the enemy must inevitably take place at Tote. This reflection made the other two anxious. "'Suppose we escape on foot,' said Loiseau. The Count shrugged his shoulders. "'How can you think of such a thing in this snow?' and with our wives. Besides, we should be pursued at once, overtaken in ten minutes, and brought back as prisoners at the mercy of the soldiery. That was true enough. They were silent. The ladies talked of dress, but a certain constraint seemed to prevail among them. Suddenly, at the end of the street, the officer appeared. His tall, wasp-like uniformed figure was outlined against the snow which bounded the horizon, and he walked, knees apart, with that motion peculiar to soldiers, who are always anxious not to soil their carefully polished boots. He bowed as he passed the ladies, then glanced scornfully at the men, who had sufficient dignity not to raise their hats, though Loiseau made a movement to do so. Boule de Suif flushed crimson to the ears, and the three married women felt unutterably humiliated at being met thus by the soldier in company with the girl whom he had treated with such scant ceremony. Then they began to talk about him, his figure, and his face. Madame Carlamadon, who had known many officers and judged them as a connoisseur, thought him not at all bad-looking. She even regretted that he was not a Frenchman, because in that case he would have made a very handsome hussar, with whom all the women would assuredly have fallen in love. When they were once more within doors, they did not know what to do with themselves. Sharp words even were exchanged apropos of the merest trifles. The silent dinner was quickly over, and each one went to bed early in the hope of sleeping, and thus killing time. They came down next morning with tired faces and irritable tempers. The women scarcely spoke to Boule de Suif. A church bell summoned the faithful to a baptism. Boule de Suif had a child being brought up by peasants at Yvetot. She did not see him once a year and never thought of him, but the idea of the child who was about to be baptized induced a sudden wave of tenderness for her own, and she insisted on being present at the ceremony. As soon as she had gone out, the rest of the company looked at one another and then drew their chairs together, for they realized that they must decide on some course of action. Loiseau had an inspiration. He proposed that they should ask the officer to detain Boule de Suif only and to let the rest depart on their way. Monsieur Follonville was entrusted with this commission, but he returned to them almost immediately. The German, who knew human nature, had shown him the door. 
He intended to keep all the travelers until his condition had been complied with. Whereupon Madame Loiseau's vulgar temperament broke bounds. "'We're not going to die of old age here,' she cried. "'Since it's that vixen's trade to behave so with men, "'I don't see that she has any right to refuse one more than another. "'I may as well tell you she took any lovers she could get at Rouen, "'even coachmen. "'Yes, indeed, madame, the coachman at the prefecture. "'I know it for a fact, for he buys his wine of us.' And now that it is a question of getting us out of a difficulty, she puts on virtuous airs, the drab. For my part, I think this officer has behaved very well. Why, there were three others of us, any one of whom he would have undoubtedly preferred. But no, he contents himself with the girl who is common property. He respects married women. Just think, he is master here. He had only to say, I wish it, and he might have taken us by force, with the help of his soldiers. The other two women shuddered. The eyes of pretty Madame Carla Madone glistened, and she grew pale, as if the officer were indeed in the act of laying violent hands on her. The men, who had been discussing the subject among themselves, drew near. Loiseau, in a state of furious resentment, was for delivering up that miserable woman, bound hand and foot, into the enemy's power. But the Count, descended from three generations of ambassadors, and endowed, moreover, with the lineaments of a diplomat, was in favor of more tactful measures. "'We must persuade her,' he said. Then they laid their plans. The women drew together, they lowered their voices, and the discussion became general, each giving his or her opinion. But the conversation was not in the least coarse— the ladies, in particular, were adepts at delicate phrases and charming subtleties of expression to describe the most improper things. A stranger would have understood none of their allusions, so guarded was the language they employed. But seeing that the thin veneer of modesty with which every woman of the world is furnished goes but a very little way below the surface, they began rather to enjoy this unedifying episode, and at bottom were hugely delighted— feeling themselves in their element, furthering the schemes of lawless love with the gusto of a gourmand cook who prepares supper for another. Their gaiety returned of itself, so amusing at last did the whole business seem to them. The Count uttered several rather risky witticisms, but so tactfully were they said that his audience could not help smiling. Loiseau in turn made some considerably broader jokes, but no one took offense and the thought expressed with such brutal directness by his wife was uppermost in the minds of all. Since it's the girl's trade, why should she refuse this man more than another? Dainty Madame Carla Madone seemed to think even that in Boule de Suif's place she would be less inclined to refuse him than another. The blockade was as carefully arranged as if they were inventing a fortress. Each agreed on the role which he or she was to play, the arguments to be used, the maneuvers to be executed. They decided on the plan of campaign, the stratagems they were to employ, and the surprise attacks which were to reduce this human citadel and force it to receive the enemy within its walls. But Cornudet remained apart from the rest, taking no share in the plot. So absorbed was the attention of all that Boule de Suif's entrance was almost unnoticed but the Count whispered a gentle, "'Hush!' which made the others look up. She was there. 
They suddenly stopped talking, and a vague embarrassment prevented them for a few moments from addressing her. But the countess, more practiced than the others in the wiles of the drawing-room, asked her, "'Was the baptism interesting?' The girl, still under the stress of emotion, told what she had seen and heard, described the faces, the attitudes of those present, and even the appearance of the church. She concluded with the words, "'It does one good to pray sometimes.' Until lunchtime the ladies contented themselves with being pleasant to her, so as to increase her confidence and make her amenable to their advice. As soon as they took their seats at table, the attack began. First they opened a vague conversation on the subject of self-sacrifice. Ancient examples were quoted, Judith and Holofernes, then, irrationally enough, Lucrece and Sextus, Cleopatra and the hostile generals whom she reduced to abject slavery by a surrender of her charms. Next was recounted an extraordinary story, born of the imagination of these ignorant millionaires, who told how the matrons of Rome seduced Hannibal, his lieutenants, and all his mercenaries at Capua. They held up to admiration all those women who from time to time have arrested the victorious progress of conquerors, made of their bodies a field of battle, a means of ruling, a weapon, who have vanquished by their heroic caresses hideous or detested beings and sacrificed their chastity to vengeance and devotion. All was said with due restraint and regard for propriety, the effect heightened now and then by an outburst of forced enthusiasm calculated to excite emulation. A listener would have thought at last that the one role of woman on earth was a perpetual sacrifice of her person a continual abandonment of herself to the caprices of a hostile soldiery. The two nuns seemed to hear nothing and to be lost in thought. Boule de Suif also was silent. During the whole afternoon she was left to her reflections, but instead of calling her Madame as they had done hitherto, her companions addressed her simply as Mademoiselle, without exactly knowing why, but as if desirous of making her descend a step in the esteem she had won and forcing her to realize her degraded position. Just as soup was served, Monsieur Follenvie reappeared, repeating his phrase of the evening before. The Prussian officer sends to ask if Mademoiselle Elizabeth Rousset has changed her mind. Boule de Suif answered briefly, No, monsieur. But at dinner the coalition weakened. Loiseau made three unfortunate remarks. Each was cudgeling his brain for further examples of self-sacrifice and could find none when the countess, possibly without ulterior motive and moved simply by a vague desire to do homage to religion, began to question the elder of the two nuns on the most striking facts in the lives of the saints. Now, it fell out that many of these had committed acts which would be crimes in our eyes, but the Church readily pardons such deeds when they are accomplished for the glory of God or the good of mankind. This was a powerful argument, and the Countess made the most of it. Then, whether by reason of a tacit understanding, a thinly veiled act of complacence such as those who wear the ecclesiastical habit excel in, or whether merely as the result of sheer stupidity, a stupidity admirably adapted to further their designs. The old nun rendered formidable aid to the conspirator. They had thought her timid. She proved herself bold, 
talkative, bigoted. She was not troubled by the ins and outs of casuistry. Her doctrines were as iron bars. Her faith knew no doubt. Her conscience no scruples. She looked on Abraham's sacrifice as natural enough, for she herself would not have hesitated to kill both father and mother if she had received a divine order to that effect. And nothing in her opinion could displease our Lord, provided the motive were praiseworthy. The countess, putting to good use the consecrated authority of her unexpected ally, led her on to make a lengthy and edifying paraphrase of that axiom enunciated by a certain school of moralists. The end justifies the means. Then, sister, she asked, you think God accepts all methods and pardons the act when the motive is pure? Undoubtedly, madame. An action reprehensible in itself often derives merit from the thought which inspires it. And in this wise they talked on, fathoming the wishes of God, predicting his judgments, describing him as interested in matters which assuredly concern him but little. All was said with the utmost care and discretion, but every word uttered by the holy woman in her nun's garb weakened the indignant resistance of the courtesan. Then the conversation drifted somewhat, and the nun began to talk of the convents of her order, of her superior, of herself, and of her fragile little neighbor, Sister San Nisifor. They had been sent from Havre to nurse the hundreds of soldiers who were in hospitals, stricken with smallpox. She described these wretched invalids and their malady, and while they themselves were detained on their way by the caprices of the Russian officer, scores of Frenchmen might be dying— whom they would otherwise have saved. For the nursing of soldiers was the old nun's specialty. She had been in the Crimea, in Italy, in Austria. And as she told the story of her campaigns, she revealed herself as one of those holy sisters of the fife and drum who seemed designed by nature to follow camps, to snatch the wounded from amid the strife of battle, and to quell with a word, more effectually than any general, the rough and insubordinate troopers. A masterful woman, her seamed and pitted face itself an image of the devastations of war. No one spoke when she had finished for fear of spoiling the excellent effect of her words. As soon as the meal was over, the travelers retired to their rooms, whence they emerged the following day at a late hour of the morning. Luncheon passed off quietly. The seed sown the preceding evening was being given time to germinate and bring forth fruit. In the afternoon the countess proposed a walk. Then the count, as had been arranged beforehand, took Boule de Suif's arm and walked with her at some distance behind the rest. He began talking to her in that familiar, paternal, slightly contemptuous tone which men of his class adopt in speaking to women like her, calling her my dear child and talking down to her from the height of his exalted social position and stainless reputation. He came right to the point. So you prefer to leave us here, exposed like yourself to all the violence which would follow on a repulse of the Prussian troops, rather than consent to surrender yourself, as you have done so many times in your life. The girl did not reply. He tried kindness, argument, sentiment. He still bore himself as count, even while adopting, when desirable, an attitude of gallantry and making pretty, nay, even tender, speeches. He exalted the service she would render them, spoke of their gratitude, 
Then suddenly, using the familiar thou, And you know, my dear, he could boast then of having made a conquest of a pretty girl such as he won't find often in his own country. Boule de Suif did not answer, and joined the rest of the party. As soon as they returned, she went to her room and was seen no more. The general anxiety was at its height. What would she do? If she still resisted, how awkward for them all. The dinner hour struck. They waited for her in vain. At last, Monsieur Follonvy entered, announcing that Mademoiselle Rousset was not well and that they might sit down to table. They all pricked up their ears. The Count drew near the innkeeper and whispered, Is it all right? Yes. Out of regard for propriety, he said nothing to his companions, but merely nodded slightly toward them. A great sigh of relief went up from all breasts. Every face was lighted up with joy. "'By gad!' shouted Loiseau. "'I'll stand champagne all round if there's any to be found in this place.' And great was Madame Loiseau's dismay when the proprietor came back with four bottles in his hands. They had all suddenly become talkative and merry. A lively joy filled all hearts. The Count seemed to perceive for the first time that Madame Carlamadon was charming. The manufacturer paid compliments to the Countess. The conversation was animated, sprightly, witty, and although many of the jokes were in the worst possible taste, all the company were amused by them, and none offended, indignation being dependent, like other emotions, on surroundings. And the mental atmosphere had gradually become filled with gross imaginings and unclean thoughts. At dessert, even the women indulged in discreetly worded allusions. Their glances were full of meaning. They had drunk much. The Count, who even in his moments of relaxation preserved a dignified demeanor, hit on a much-appreciated comparison of the condition of things with the termination of a winter spent in the icy solitude of the North Pole and the joy of shipwrecked mariners who at last perceive a southward track opening out before their eyes. L'Oiseau, fairly in his element, rose to his feet, holding aloft a glass of champagne. "'I drink to our deliverance!' he shouted. All stood up and greeted the toast with acclamation. Even the two good sisters yielded to the solicitations of the ladies and consented to moisten their lips with the foaming wine, which they had never before tasted. They declared it was like effervescent lemonade, but with a pleasanter flavor. "'It is a pity,' said Loiseau, "'that we have no piano.' We might have had a quadrille. Cornudet had not spoken a word or made a movement. He seemed plunged in serious thought, and now and then tugged furiously at his great beard, as if trying to add still further to its length. At last, toward midnight, when they were about to separate, Loiseau, whose gait was far from steady, suddenly slapped him on the back, saying thickly, "'You're not jolly tonight. Why are you so silent, old man?' Cornudet threw back his head, cast one swift and scornful glance over the assemblage, and answered, "'I tell you all, you have done an infamous thing.' He rose, reached the door, and, repeating, "'Infamous!' disappeared. A chill fell on all. Loiseau himself looked foolish and disconcerted for a moment, but soon recovered his aplomb, and, writhing with laughter, exclaimed, "'Really, you are all too green for anything.' Pressed for an explanation, he related the mysteries of the corridor, 
whereat his listeners were hugely amused. The ladies could hardly contain their delight. The Count and Monsieur Carlamadon laughed till they cried. They could scarcely believe their ears. What? Are you sure? He wanted, I tell you I saw it with my own eyes. And she refused? Because the Prussian was in the next room. Surely you're mistaken. I swear I'm telling you the truth. The Count was choking with laughter. The manufacturer held his sides. Loiseau continued. So you may well imagine he doesn't think this evening's business at all amusing. And all three began to laugh again, choking, coughing, and almost ill with merriment. Then they separated. But Madame Loiseau, who was nothing if not spiteful, remarked to her husband as they were on the way to bed that that stuck-up little minx of a Carla Madone had laughed on the wrong side of her mouth all the evening. You know, she said, when women run after uniforms, it's all the same to them whether the men who wear them are French or Prussian. It's perfectly sickening. The next morning the snow showed dazzling white under a clear winter sun. The coach, ready at last, waited before the door. While a flock of white pigeons with pink eyes spotted in the centers with black puffed out their white feathers and walked sedately between the legs of the six horses, picking at the steaming manure. The driver, wrapped in his sheepskin coat, was smoking a pipe on the box, and all the passengers, radiant with delight at their approaching departure, were putting up provisions for the remainder of the journey. They were waiting only for Boule de Suif. At last she appeared. She seemed rather shamefaced and embarrassed, and advanced with timid step toward her companions, who with one accord turned aside as if they had not seen her. The Count, with much dignity, took his wife by the arm and removed her from the unclean contact. The girl stood still, stupefied with astonishment. Then, plucking up courage, accosted the manufacturer's wife with a humble, "'Good morning, madame,' to which the other replied merely with a slight, arid, insolent nod, accompanied by a look of outraged virtue. Everyone suddenly appeared extremely busy and kept as far from Boule de Suif as if her skirts had been infected with some deadly disease. Then they hurried to the coach, followed by the despised courtesan, who, arriving last of all, silently took the place she had occupied during the first part of the journey. The rest seemed neither to see nor to know her, all save Madame Loiseau, who, glancing contemptuously in her direction, remarked half aloud to her husband, "'What a mercy I am not sitting next to that creature!' The lumbering vehicle started on its way, and the journey began afresh. At first no one spoke. Boule de Suif dared not even raise her eyes. She felt at once indignant with her neighbors and humiliated at having yielded to the Prussian into whose arms they had so hypocritically cast her. But the Countess, turning toward Madame Carla Madone, soon broke the painful silence. I think you know Madame d'Estrelle. Yes, she's a friend of mine. Such a charming woman. Delightful, exceptionally talented, and an artist to the fingertips. She sings marvelously and draws to perfection. The manufacturer was chatting with the Count, and amid the clatter of the window panes a word of their conversation was now and then distinguishable. Shares, maturity, premium, time limit. Loiseau, 
who had abstracted from the inn the time-worn pack of cards, thick with the grease of five years' contact with half-wiped-off tables, started a game of bezique with his wife. The good sisters, taking up simultaneously the long rosaries hanging from their waists, made the sign of the cross and began to mutter in unison interminable prayers, their lips moving ever more and more swiftly, as if they sought which should outdistance the other in the race of orisons. From time to time they kissed a medal and crossed themselves anew, then resumed their rapid and unintelligible murmur. Cornudet sat still, lost in thought. At the end of three hours, Loiseau gathered up the cards and remarked that he was hungry. His wife thereupon produced a parcel tied with string, from which she extracted a piece of cold veal. This she cut into neat, thin slices, and both began to eat. "'We may as well do the same,' said the countess. The rest agreed, and she unpacked the provisions which had been prepared for herself, the count, and the car Lamadon. In one of those oval dishes, the lids of which are decorated with an earthenware hair, by way of showing that a game pie lies within, was a succulent delicacy consisting of the brown flesh of the game, larded with streaks of bacon and flavored with other meats chopped fine.' A solid wedge of Gruyere cheese, which had been wrapped in a newspaper, bore the imprint, Items of News, on its rich, oily surface. The two good sisters brought to light a hunk of sausage smelling strongly of garlic, and Cornudet, plunging both hands at once into the capacious pockets of his loose overcoat, produced from one four hard-boiled eggs and from the other a crust of bread. He removed the shells, threw them into the straw beneath his feet, and began to devour the eggs, letting morsels of the bright yellow yolk fall in his mighty beard, where they looked like stars. Boule de Suif, in the haste and confusion of her departure, had not thought of anything, and stifling with rage, she watched all these people placidly eating. At first, ill-suppressed wrath shook her whole person, and she opened her lips to shriek the truth at them, to overwhelm them with a volley of insults but she could not utter a word, so choked was she with indignation. No one looked at her, no one thought of her. She felt herself swallowed up in the scorn of these virtuous creatures who had first sacrificed, then rejected her as a thing useless and unclean. Then she remembered her big basket full of the good things they had so greedily devoured, the two chickens coated in jelly, the pies, the pears, the four bottles of claret, and her fury broke forth like a cord that is overstrained, and she was on the verge of tears. She made terrible efforts at self-control, drew herself up, swallowed the sobs which choked her. But the tears rose nevertheless, shone at the brink of her eyelids, and soon two heavy drops coursed slowly down her cheeks. Others followed more quickly, like water filtering from a rock, and fell one after another on her rounded bosom. She sat upright, with a fixed expression, her face pale and rigid, hoping desperately that no one saw her give way. But the countess noticed that she was weeping, and with a sign drew her husband's attention to the fact. He shrugged his shoulders, as if to say, Well, what of it? It's not my fault. Madame Loiseau chuckled triumphantly and murmured, She's weeping for shame. The two nuns had betaken themselves once more to their prayers, first wrapping the remainder of their sausage in paper. 
Then Cornaday, who was digesting his eggs, stretched his long legs under the opposite seat, threw himself back, folded his arms, smiled like a man who had just thought of a good joke, and began to whistle the Marseillaise. The faces of his neighbors clouded. The popular air evidently did not find favor with them. They grew nervous and irritable, and seemed ready to howl as a dog does at the sound of a barrel organ. Cornaday saw the discomfort he was creating, and whistled the louder. Sometimes he even hummed the words, Amour sacre de la patrie, conduit soutien nos bras vengeurs, liberté, liberté, chérie, combat avec les défenseurs. The coach progressed more swiftly, the snow being harder now, and all the way to Dieppe, during the long, dreary hours of the journey, first in the gathering dusk, then in the thick darkness, raising his voice above the rumbling of the vehicle. Cornaday continued with fierce obstinacy, his vengeful and monotonous whistling, forcing his weary and exasperated hearers to follow the song from end to end, to follow every word of every line, as each was repeated over and over again with untiring persistency. And Boule de Suif still wept, and sometimes a sob she could not restrain was heard in the darkness between two verses of the song. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.